and it's great to see you all here. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. Um, Katie uh, is on sabbatical. She's one of our staff members. Marcus is out of town this week. Uh, I think this is the first Sunday in ever <laughs> that we've gone into a Sunday morning without at least one other staff member present here to do all of the things. So folks on our advisory council have stepped up big time this week to help out. Um, I think I will have Amy preside again. I mean, come on. She did a great job. Um, and this is all to make sure that this morning happens. From coffee to soul food to communion, we are deeply thankful for all of them and for all of you who do so much to make this all happen. It takes a village to raise a church, I think. Um, a very cool part of that village is the little nook in the corner where all the artists hang out. Um, last week, Ben Ober created this amazing piece of artwork right here to accompany the themes of Ruth chapter 1, so I encourage you to look at that this morning. Um, and this week, Jordan Alanese has created a digital design, which is going to be here on the screens, to represent the, ch the themes and the sort of things about, and that's not the right one, um, <clears throat> of Ruth chapter 2. Bam, there we go. <clears throat> Ruth chapter 2, it's here on the screens. Um, Jordan and Matthew are actually not here. I mentioned last week that it, the artist like creates the thing and then doesn't show up to receive any feedback. <clears throat> but she's not here because she's at my house with her husband. They're watching our kids because we've had all kinds of crazy things happen this week. Um, and Griff's been in the hospital for a couple days, but is slowly recovering. It takes a village to just care for the Webble family. So you guys <laughs> have done so much for us the last few days. So thank you to them. Um, so she's not just skipping. She's helping. Um, our hope through all of this art is that these visual representations can help us engage this incredible book of Ruth in a sort of different way, not just with our ears by listening, but also with our eyes and our hearts by visualizing as well. Um, at the end of the series, I mentioned last week, we're going to have an entire Sunday built upon this artwork and songs and stories all shared from people in this church um, connected to the themes of Ruth and how we've seen those themes play out in our lives in real amazing ways. So uh, that's at the end of the series. I'm super excited about it. Um, I want to invite us now in this moment to pause to pray, as Amy said, to acknowledge who we are before the Lord and to bring our honest selves, because the Lord wants that and can handle it. So please join with me in a moment to bring our hearts to Jesus. Lord, in this still and quiet moment, we bring ourselves to you, trusting that you meet us here and that you want to know us and you want to commune with us. We're open to your spirit. Teach us, show us your great heart this morning all over again. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I have this bad habit. It's in, I think it's uh, inherited genetically from my father. It manifests like this. Megan asked me a question, and I weigh all the factors and I play out possible scenarios, and I get distracted by my phone, and sometimes it takes me so long to answer that Megan thinks that I'm ignoring her, which drives her crazy, as in fact it should if I was in fact ignoring her, because if I was in fact ignoring her or distracted by something else, or if I had forgotten the question she asked, or if I maybe hadn't really heard the question in the first place because I was scrolling through my news feed, then all of that would communicate to her, in fact, that her question wasn't very important to me, which in theory might, if it happened over and over and over again, convey the idea that she herself wasn't very important to me, which is not what I'd ever want to communicate, but it's what I might be communicating in theory if I, in fact, didn't respond when she asked me a question. What I'm trying to say is this. When someone asks you a question, it's a good idea to respond to their question 
to say something, to say anything, to acknowledge that you heard the question, to tell them that you're thinking about the question, give them an answer to the question, engage in the conversation. Because if you don't respond, then it's like you're not even there, or like they're not even there. Maybe we've had that kind of experience with God. We're living our lives. We're putting in the work. We're making choices, living courageously, faithfully, defending those who are being exploited, making meaningful contributions to the world, raising successful, confident, kind children, fulfilling our obligations, staying mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and, a, and mentally healthy. So many things. We're trying so hard, and sometimes we can't really tell if God is there. We don't always sense God or see God or hear God. And we wonder, are you there, God? But we press on because we're following God, and if God is giving us these circumstances, it must mean that God thinks we can handle these circumstances. We just need to have more faith or ask God to give us more strength. So we press on, and then another bad thing happens. But we press on, and then another thing happens. And we press on because it's the right thing to do, and we're waiting for a concrete sign that the Lord is with us, that we're not alone. Are you there, God? Do you hear me? Can I get some of that blessing that I keep reading about in Scripture? Some divine favor? Can I catch a break? No? Nothing? Just another hard thing? And another? And if the hard things come over and over and over, if the silences stretch long enough, it can start to feel like God's not paying attention. That's where I think Naomi finds herself in this section of Ruth. If you were here last week, we detailed the titanic losses that Naomi has experienced. To escape famine, her Israelite family has moved and immigrated to Moab. They've become strangers in that strange land, and in that strange land, her husband dies. And her two sons marry Moabite women, and then her two sons die, and without having produced any children. And when they died, Naomi's future dies with them, and she's alone, without the shelter or protection, security of a husband or sons or grandsons, one hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. And she leaves Moab, and she returns to Judah, where she at least might find some food. I mean, she's down to basics. And she wants to go alone, like we talked about last week. But stinking Ruth, stubborn, precious, loyal Ruth, vows to go and to live and to worship and to die with Naomi all the way to the bitter end. Now, in the passage Rachel just read for us, they've made it to Bethlehem, which is Naomi's hometown. <clears throat> the whole place is humming at the arrival of these two women who have come accompanied by any men. Who are they? What's their story? Wait, that kind of looks like... No, it can't be. I mean, she looks way too old and too worn out and too eat up. But... It kind of looks like, Naomi, is that you? Ruth, Naomi replies, Ruth 1.20, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara. The Almighty has made my life bitter. Naomi's life is so bitter that she wants to change her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. Have you ever eaten something super bitter? Put something super bitter in your mouth? It scrunches up your whole face into this tight little ball. It's our body's way of protecting us, of telling us that the thing that we just put in our mouth is harmful. It's toxic. It could poison us or even hurt us. 
Life has given Naomi one bitter thing to ingest after another, and she has to just keep taking it. Bitter bite after bitter bite after bitter bite. She cannot change her circumstances. Her hope is gone. She is in the pit of despair. Seems to me like an are you there, God moment. Are you there, God? Do you see me? Do you care about my circumstances? She goes on to explain in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? For Naomi, if God is there, it doesn't seem like God's really helping. God's only making it worse. You see, in the pit of despair, it's pretty dark. You can't really see very clearly. For example, when Naomi left for Moab, she wasn't full, like she says in this moment. She was actually desperate and starving and trying to find food in a foreign land. And now, in this moment, she's not actually empty. She actually has Ruth standing right next to her. But we're in, when we're in the pit of despair, it all just feels horrible, and we can't see. So don't judge Naomi too harshly here. She's lost hope, yes, but she finds the strength to be honest about her bitterness. She's not hiding or pretending or denying how much this all hurts. She's naming it, and she names God in it. This, friends, is what a godly lament looks like. And our job isn't to pass judgment on her, but to honor her strength and to bear witness to her pain. Because it takes strength to admit that it's too much. It takes strength to admit that we're human beings with limited resources and limited abilities and limited knowledge and limited time, that we've reached our limit, that we're not the Savior, that we're not God, and that sometimes we just can't do the thing that we want to be able to do. We are conditioned to ignore that reality. Women especially are conditioned to ignore this human reality, this human limit. We live in a culture that values self-control and grit and perseverance. We're taught that giving up is weak. We're taught that if we fail, it's because there's something wrong with us. We didn't try hard enough. We didn't fight long enough. We didn't believe enough. But sometimes the strong thing, the right thing, is to stop bashing our heads against a wall that we cannot move. In their book on burnout, Naomi and Amelia Nagoski explain it with an illustration from the animal kingdom. Picture a squirrel. Or just look at that one. <clears throat> this squirrel, she's foraging in her section of the forest. She's safe here. She has what she needs in her section of the forest, except every day it gets a little bit harder to find enough food in this section of the forest for her to survive. So she digs deeper into her reserves, finding all of her stores that she's saved up over the winter. But eventually, over time, these deeper resources get exhausted as well. And she could keep exerting herself in her section of the field, digging, foraging, working harder to bring back less and less. But Miss Squirrel does the math, and she faces the bitter truth. If she wants to survive, she cannot stay in her area of the forest. She has to leave. She can't just try harder. She has to change course. It's not giving up. It's surviving. And I think that's what's kind of happening here with Naomi. To survive, Naomi has accepted the bitter truth and changed the course of her life. She changes her home. She changes her name. 
And I don't think it's giving up. I think it's shifting course, changing her goal. So please don't judge her too harshly or yourself too harshly. Ruth didn't judge Naomi. Ruth stayed with her, and she bore witness to the pain. Speaking of Ruth, what about Ruth in this scenario? She's also lost, right? She's also come to live in a foreign land. When the whole town goes out to greet Naomi, did you notice that no one even mentioned Ruth? (laughs) No one even acknowledged her existence. She's so foreign that everyone completely ignores her. Great start to your new home, right? When the text does notice who Ruth is, she, they, they mentioned very specifically that, she, that she's a young Moabite woman. In fact, the text does a real good job of reminding us over and over again, in case you forget, that Ruth's not from around here. She's from Moab. Perhaps because she's younger, right, and maybe life has not worn her yet down to the nub, Ruth decides not to change her name to Bitter, but she does change course for her life. Her old goals were husband, family, kids. Those goals are dead. So she ventures into a new section of the forest, and she establishes a new goal. And her new goal is take care of Naomi. Like, that's her whole life, take care of Naomi. She's a foreigner, she's a woman, she is single, but she will find food for them. She takes the initiative, Ruth 2-2. One day, Ruth, the Moabite, don't forget, said to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up stalks of grain left behind. You see, Ruth knows that in Israel... Farmers were required to leave the edges of their field unharvested so that the poor and foreigners living among them could go collect food and not starve to death. This practice uh, it was called gleaning. Gleaning was basically a form of welfare. It was Israel's commitment to care for foreigners in a dignified way and for those people to have a dignified way to work and provide food for their families. So verse 2-3, Ruth went out into the, to gather grain behind the harvesters. As it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, a relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. And as it happened. It's a fascinating little phrase buried here in Ruth. And as it happened. The Hebrew literally says, and it chanced by chance. (laughs) It just so happened. And, oh, by the way, wouldn't you know it? Ruth finds herself in the very field that belongs to a man named Boaz. Now, we've met Boaz a verse earlier. They describe him as a wealthy and influential man, but actually the words are mighty and strong, probably saying more about his character than his money. He's also, in some really vague way that we don't fully understand, ever in the course of Ruth, connected relationally to Elimelech. The exact nature of that connection is never articulated. It is not strong enough to obligate him to protect them in any way, but it's there. All we really know about him is he's a great guy, and he's on some distant branch of their family tree. Ruth doesn't know any of this about Boaz. She's too busy working in the field, too busy taking care of Naomi, too busy gleaning grain in a field that, as it just so happens, is owned by Boaz, who, as it just so happens, notices Ruth. Who's that? What's her story? Oh, her, replies her foreman. She's the young woman from Moab, don't forget, who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain, and she's been hard at work ever since, except for a few moments when she took a rest. And this bit of information, as it just so happens, meant something to Boaz. He goes over to Ruth. Listen, my daughter, stay here when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay here. 
follow the other young women. I'll make sure the young men don't touch you. And when you get really thirsty, just drink water from our well. <laughs> Wait, what? Ruth wasn't expecting any of this. Ridicule, yes. Evil eyes, cold shoulders, yes. To be completely ignored, of course. But kindness? Advice? Protection? Food and water? Verse 10, Ruth falls at his feet and thanks him warmly. The language is stronger than that. Ruth threw herself onto the ground face first, bowing before Boaz as in an act of worship. What have I done to deserve this? What have I done to deserve this? After all, I'm only a foreigner. I'm only a foreigner. Only a stranger. Only a woman. I'm nobody. Why are you doing this? Why are you being nice to me? Is this a trick? What's the catch? What do I have to do for you, Boaz? No trick, no catch. Boaz replies, I know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I've heard how you've left your family, your father, your mother, your own land to live here among complete strangers. I didn't notice this the first time, but there's something I think curious about the way Boaz phrases that last part. He says, I heard how you left your land to live here among complete strangers. You might expect Boaz, a mighty, strong, wealthy Israelite, to say the thing in reverse. I heard how you left that strange land to live here among us familiar people. But he says it backwards. He says it as if he can see it from Ruth's perspective. You left your familiar home in order to live here among strangers. He calls his people the strangers. Why would he do that? Like, why would he see things from Ruth's perspective? Well, wouldn't you know it? Oh, by the way, it just so happens that according to the genealogy in Matthew 1, Boaz's mom is Rahab. Rahab, the prostitute. Rahab, the outsider. Rahab, the Canaanite woman who had the good sense to see that Yahweh was a God like no other. Rahab, who had the courage to hide enemy spies in her home. Rahab, the first non-Israelite person to ally with Israel. Rahab, who joined the Israelites, who knew what it was like to leave her home and to live among complete strangers. Maybe Rahab, the Canaanite's son, Boaz, felt some of his mother's otherness. You have to wonder if Boaz had a special place in his heart for a foreign woman working so hard in the fields. You have to wonder if Boaz, alone among the men of Israel, could see the world from Ruth's perspective, that Israel could be a strange place, a scary place, a hard place. You have to wonder if Boaz's immediate protective response to seeing a brave, daring immigrant in his field was not in large part influenced by the nurturing presence of his brave and daring immigrant mother who raised him to be the kind of man who would see an outsider and invite her to stay in his field and drink from his water and eat from his food. The kind of man who would see her and not ignore her, who would support her, not shun her, who would pray for her. Verse 12, may the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. You know, Boaz offers this as a prayer, but Ruth's response tells us that at least from her perspective, that prayer has been answered. Answered through Boaz. She says in verse 13, I hope to continue to please you, sir. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly, even though I'm not one of your workers. 
That word comfort in is a powerful word in Scripture. It's to be revived, to be refreshed, to be relieved. You don't find this kind of comfort in cliches like, it's going to be all right. You don't find this kind of comfort in tweets about thoughts and prayers. It's the kind of comfort that comes because someone actually does something real. I'm talking about concrete, tangible, meaningful assistance. When someone sticks their own neck out to personally guarantee your safety and well-being. Remember, this is Ruth, the Moabite. She's got no father, no husband, no kids. She's committed to a grieving woman. She's gleaning fields for scraps, working herself raw with barely any rest. She's given up her home, her people, her customs. Hard thing after hard thing after hard thing. She has absolutely no one else to turn to. Then Boaz saw her, and he gave her comfort, concrete comfort. I mean, imagine being able to go to work each day and to know that you're going to be physically safe, that no one's going to touch you or attack you. Imagine knowing that you have the food you need to care for your grieving mother-in-law. Imagine that you have the financial security that you need to survive. Imagine having all of that without having to give anything in return. You know, none of this makes any sense, but Ruth finds herself on the receiving end of unmerited grace and favor. Are you there, God? Do you see me? Do you care about me? Because it seems to me that God was working, working in all of these, and it just so happens, wouldn't you know it, moments, that this woman found herself in this field that just happened to be owned by this guy whose mom just happened to be Rahab. God's in these circumstances. And God's in these people, too. People like Ruth, whose love for Naomi represents God's love for us, a love that chooses to sympathize with us, to leave heaven, and to live and die with us in our very strange land. And God shows up through Boaz, whose kindness and generosity reminds us of the concrete action God has taken to shield us from loneliness and isolation in Christ. To us, Psalm 91 says, to cover us, using that imagery of protection, to shelter us, whose faithful promises are our armor. And here's, I think, the kicker. God wasn't just showing up for Ruth. God showed up for Naomi, too. God was there with Naomi in her pit of despair, noticing her, caring about her, responding to her, even when she couldn't see it. Because, as it just so happened, the only reason Ruth and Boaz are here in the first place, at this time and at this place, to have this connection, is because Naomi left Moab to drink her bitter cup until the very bitter end. In her despair, through her despair, God was weaving her restoration. Even though she's given up all hope for herself, God had not abandoned Naomi. Because if you think about it, this story is not about nations, it's not about kingdom, it's not about the showdown between good and evil. This whole story is about one family. It's about two women walking through grief and pain together. It's about God caring so much about these two women that God wove the threads of nations and armies and genealogies and family histories together so at this moment, these two women would experience provision and protection and comfort and care. This chapter of Ruth shows us that God does care about us, that God is working. When we're in the darkness, God is there moving. When we're working in the fields, working so hard to put food on the table that we don't even have time to stop or slow down, God's still working. 
moving. As God was moving and working with Naomi, as God was moving and working with Ruth, as God was moving and working with Rahab, as God was moving and working with us. We might not see God or hear God or feel God in all of these moments, but this story shows us that God is still there. As the song says, even when I don't see it, you're working. And that's the encouragement I want us all to hear this morning. Whether we're working so hard, whether we've experienced so many hard things, whether we're in the pit of despair, I want us to hear and know that God is there with us, moving and working and caring. Amen? Let's pray.